0: You're listening to 2.23am with Dr. Christine McDougall. Are you ready for a new kind of success and fulfillment? End the silent struggle. Join us as Dr. Christine McDougall speaks to successful, high-achieving men as they share their journey towards a more fulfilling and sustainable life and business and discover the better alternative. It's 2.23am and the life of your future is calling.
1: I am delighted today to chat with Dr. Mark Goldston. I met Mark through another Mark, Mark Eckhart, who has appeared on this podcast and my good friend Amir Nasir, who both interviewed me and was interviewed by me. It is so wonderful to meet someone who is a black belt equivalent in so many of the areas I have dabbled in. In this episode, Mark shares some of his powerful strategies that anyone can deploy to support people who might be suffering depression. The process literally saves lives. We talk trauma, vulnerability, and how we might scale empathy, which is something we definitely need to be far better at as humans. A little bit about Mark, and it's an impressive list. Dr. Mark Goldston is the host of the My Wake Up Call podcast, where he interviews people on the wake up calls that changed who they are and made them better human beings and better at being human. He is one of the world's foremost experts on deep listening, radical empathy, and real influence with his book, Just Listen, becoming the top book on listening in the world, translated into 20 languages and a topic he speaks and teaches globally, including training managers of the Russian Federation in Moscow. He is an advisor, coach, mentor, and confidant to CEOs, founders, and entrepreneurs, helping them to unlock all their internal blocks to achieving success, fulfillment, and happiness. Originally a UCLA professor of psychiatry and a crisis psychiatrist for over 25 years, and former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer, Dr. Goldstone's expertise has been forged and proven in the crucible of real-life, high-stakes situations, including being a boots-on-the-ground suicide prevention specialist, and serving as an advisor in the O.J. Simpson criminal trial. Including the book, Just Listen, he is the author of seven books with multiple bestsellers. He writes or contributes to Harvard Business Review, Business Insider, Biz Journals, Fast Company, Huffington Post, Psychology Today, and has appeared as an psychological expert in the media, including CNN, Headline News, MSNBC, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, Fortune, Psychology Today, and was the subject of a PBS special. He lives with his wife in Los Angeles, California, Wow, what a privilege it was for me to spend some time with Mark Golston. Please enjoy this episode. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Dr. Mark Golston, who is a wildly successful author, but most of all has spent a large amount of his life uh, working to serve people uh, with, um, both in business and so on with mental health issues and just general state of well-being. So thank you very much for being on the on the podcast today, Mark.
2: I'm excited to be here with you.
1: Right. So So uh, I came to you via two very close friends who both rave about your work, and they suggested that you would be a a great asset to this podcast. As I mentioned to you, what I'm really trying to do is is, uh, um, have a conversation around what it means to be a man in today's world, given the complexities of gender issues and so on. But more importantly, the outcome is how can we normalize some of the the experiences that uh, go on for all people, um, but men as well, about uh, their isolation and, uh, and the issues that they face that often they don't put their hand up and reach out for support. So I'd like to start with your, you, know, you as a human being right now, uh, having walked this landscape of uh, serving other people for all of your life how you're showing up in the world how what are you what are your the things that you're experiencing personally in today's landscape of the masculine well
2: it's interesting uh i I live to mentor actually uh, I was fortunate enough to have seven mentors uh they've all passed away and my last mentor was a big leadership uh, uh thought leader named Warren Bennis who's pretty well known around the world and uh, and part of what he talked about uh, as he got older is it's painful to be irrelevant. So uh, that's one of the reasons I mentor people, uh, because it keeps you relevant. And, and I try not to tell old war stories, but if I'm on a podcast, you may pull a few out of me. So uh, w- 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 that may be a challenge. But something that I am discovering, uh, and you can tell me if you see this in Australia, yeah. but I- I'm finding that. Uh, a lot of Americans, especially young Americans, there's an energy where they're running away from something as much as they're running towards something. And you'll see a smile on their face that's tentative, and they'll say, oh, everything is exciting. And, And what I can tell the millennials, because I've seen people of all ages, is if you keep following that energy, it may not help you get in touch with what you're running away from, And often what people are running away from, men and women, is the unfinished feelings of hurt and fear that they didn't stay long enough with to finish feeling them. Because when you fully feel feelings, they ebb and flow. They dissipate. But what I've discovered is many people have been traumatized. And one of my books is uh, PTSD for Dummies. Yeah is that when you're going through a trauma, you do everything you can to survive. You're not there to heal. You're there to survive. And so you race past it to get through it. And and I'll, I'm guessing you'll concur with what I'm about to say. When I talk to people who have been through terrible traumas, if you look them squarely in the eye, not in a confrontational way, but just squarely and deeply into their eyes. And you say, good for you. You're so courageous. Good for you that you got over that. And they'll look at you and they'll say, I didn't get over it. Mm. I, I'm not the same.
3: Mm.
2: I got past it. And then when you say, well, what do you mean? And you keep looking in their eyes. They'll say, I'm tentative. I, I check things too much. Yeah. I don't, I don't trust where I step. And actually something, one of my missions, which I'm going to have to give up because I've gotten no traction on it, even though I wrote PTSD for dummies, I'm trying to change the diagnosis to what people live. And what people live is what I call RTA, which is re-traumatization avoidance. Right. Re-traumatization avoidance, because a lot of people, when they're going through a trauma, you don't don't have time to feel the feeling feelings that you're feeling all the way through. And a lot of times when you get past it, you don't know how you survived it. And there's this feeling, if I go back to it and give it another chance, it'll swallow me up. So all the symptoms of PTS, it's now called PTS, really are symptoms of re-traumatization avoidance. You numb, you avoid people socially. When you lower your guard, like if you're a, a veteran and you're driving away from people in your pickup truck, and you hear a car backfire, you jump out of your skin.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and, and part of what it is is that uh, people are afraid to have the second shoe drop. And part of my approach to healing people, as opposed to helping them cope, is to reach in and uh, have them talk about some of those events. And something I've observed, and I'm guessing you'll also agree with this, and then I'm going to shut up and see if we're even on track together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 what, I, what I've noticed is that when, uh, when people describe an incident so clearly that you can see it with your own eyes, they re-experience and feel the incident. Mm-hmm. But the difference is they're re-experiencing and feeling an incident that they went through alone with you. So what so instead of experience high high cortisol uh their amygdala mm-hmm. uh, throwing the blood flow into their lower survival brain they experience oxytocin because they're with you and what happens is the cortisol goes down the amygdala inside their emotional brain goes back into its holster and the blood flow goes back into their upper brain and after they cry with relief because they feel less alone they start to be able to think.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I've got a, a bunch of questions in this, but I'm going to start because you you said that... Uh, and I just want to... I'm, because I actually believe that trauma is... There's, there's scales of trauma, and obviously I don't want to take away from people who have suffered uh, extraordinarily obvious trauma, uh, whether it's in, in childhood from... Um, um, incorrect parenting or, or damaging parenting or, or whether it is the military type of trauma or so on. But I, I actually, my sense is actually that, that because of the inadequacies that, that we've sort of now becoming aware of as grown humans, that we don't actually have good mechanisms to deal with even everyday trauma. Uh, and, and so I, can you speak into that? Because I think it's more prevalent than most of us think
2: well, think of it this way. If, if trauma from early on up until the present causes fear, anxiety, uh, 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 the threat of panic and hurt, and we race to just get through it, yes, uh, there's a cumulative effect and it builds up. So I think what happens is since there's a cumulative effect and it hasn't been released, that uh, we're very easily triggered – by all kinds of things that just reactivate all these traumas that we never experienced all the way through. Right. So someone, so someone can be talking directly to us and they're just being direct. And and in our mind, we can hear it as abuse and criticism. Uh, Something I do in my coaching with people, uh, and and I say this especially to men who often run away from vulnerability because they're, they they're paranoid that people will see them as weak. And I say no, as long as you're not feeling sorry for yourself, people will see you as real.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They'll approach you when you show vulnerability. Vulnerability isn't weakness; it's openness. And uh, and and, and so it's uh, I, I'm trying to help men re-feel certain things. And, and it's interesting that there's a real successful, uh, financial, uh, uh, man that I'm coaching. I just spoke to him today and, uh, and, and he was, and he, it was interesting. What he said to me, uh, is I have nobody to talk to. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: You know, he says, if I talk to my family, I don't want to worry them.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, and plus, they're so used to me being kind of the way I am, they wouldn't—they wouldn't get it anyway. And when I'm talking to other men like me, it's very transactional. Yeah. You know, I have a feeling that we're all vulnerable, but n- nobody is willing to go first. And so I told them, I said, "Okay, so here are my marching orders. Uh, whenever we have a call, I want to spend the first 15 minutes giving you a high colonic." <laughs> So I, so I just want you to dump. I yeah. don't care if you make sense. The yeah. less sense you make, the better. Yeah. And, he start, and he started chuckling. And I said, you're chuckling because you need it every time.
1: Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I I I know exactly what you're talking about. But it's it's actually how for some reason uh, as as our uh, mutual friend Amir pointed out to me, um I've spent most of my life working with men and and have been privileged to uh, conversations that they've never shared with another human. And, uh, and so that's part of why I think this work is so important. But coming back to coming back to the so if somebody that's listening to this is recognizing that they have unfinished trauma or this, uh, they're running away from these feelings that you spoke about early. It sounds to me like the, the the process that you're evidencing here is on this uh, uh, way of moving towards a more whole place uh, where the trauma is behind them. Uh, is there's there's a part of that that is both speaking, but it's also being held by a witness that is not uh, not going to bring judgment or, or any scale of. Um, uh, emotional overlay onto their experience they're just going to be present too, and and really really is that is that what you're speaking to
2: yeah that's exactly it and and you know i i, uh, I was a suicide specialist for about <clears throat> uh <clears throat> over 20 years and nobody killed themselves and my main tool was really almost surgical empathy yes but i wasn't scalable and so uh, what I'm very excited about is I found a way to scale empathy. I found a way to teach others how to reach others and, uh, and get depressed people and suicidal people to open up. In fact, I, there's a process that I'm sharing with Suicide Hotlines. And uh, are you familiar with CRISPR?
1: Yes, the gene editing Tool. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah,
2: so for listeners, uh, for listeners, CRISPR is a gene editing tool where you go into the genes and you can edit them. And you know, and there's a lot of hope for that in terms of genetic-based illnesses. Well, what I've uh, realized I was doing, and it's a clumsy name, and I'd welcome any better names, but it's called targeted interventional empathy. Right. Tar- targeted interventional empathy, and what that means is you you go into the sometimes primal wounds in people's psyches and then their souls and spirit, and you touch it specifically with empathy. And uh, And the process is a three-step process, but I'll give you the... Well, well we have time. I can give you the whole three steps, and if anybody wants to hear more, they can always find me. Because if this saves some lives, uh, I'm cool with that. Yeah. So the, so the three steps of... Uh, of, uh, targeted interventional empathy is when someone's speaking to you,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, as my mentor, Warren Bennis used to say, be a first-class noticer. Because when you're noticing, you're tuned in and connecting when you're just looking, watching and seeing you're an observer. So be a first-class noticer and notice hyperbole and inflection, so hyperbole would be awful, horrendous, uh, or inflection. I can't take this anymore. And notice those because they have emotion on them. Mm-hmm. Let, let the person say them, and don't rush in to reassure them out of your own anxiety. That tend, that's the human nature reaction. Oh, oh we'll, we'll get you some help. Oh, we'll make it better. And what happens is that shuts them down. And what you really want to do is drain the abscess inside that's bubbling to the surface. So notice hyperbole or inflection. So when someone says, uh, uh, my life is just a, is totally horrendous, let them finish speaking and pause for about two seconds. When you do that, that causes them to feel that what they've said has landed and you've listened and you've considered it. It's very important because if you rush in what it what that communicates is your anxiety and it didn't and it didn't get through to you, so you pause and the first step is say more about uh, the awful or the horrendous and when you do that they're going to start to say more and in my book just listen, which is a book about how do you that's called a conversation deepener so you say say more, and you'll notice that they they go even deeper mm. and then and then, when they finish that next chunk, another conversation deepener is to say, really, yeah. which is inviting them to go even deeper. And so you do this for a while. And, and what you want to do is uh, replace their stranglehold in my in, in my work on suicide with rapport with you. And then the second step, which takes some skill, but it's absolutely magical, is something that I call mediated catharsis and mediated catharsis is when you give the other person the words to say to you that are really over the top that they would be hesitant to say to you because normally if they said them to you you'd say not not calm down not calm down you know get a hold of yourself but it's what they're feeling so in essence the first step is you're picking the scab off with say more and really yes and then the mediated catharsis then starts to drain the pus. So what that would be like if you're dealing with someone who's, in my in my case, people who are suicidal or desperate, uh, and this takes some skill to develop, uh, but you might say to them, after you feel a little rapport, is to say, why don't you, uh, I wanna try something. Say this back to me. And this might be a caller in a suicide hotline. You say, say this back to me. Um, I don't know why I even called you. You know, I I knew it would be a waste of time. You're asking me these questions, you're checking boxes, and I don't feel any better. Damn it, why did I call you? So could you say something like that? Or, you know, or you can ad lib. And so you're inviting them to vent even more. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And so, uh, uh, and this is almost magical. Uh, And then what you'll feel is that they're really into the conversation And the third step, and this anyone can use, you can use this with anyone. I can use this with men. I can use this with women. can use this with children. Uh, The final step is you say uh, seven words. And they're going to say, what? Yeah, seven words. And they're going to say, what the F? Yeah. Uh, And then, and, and so you're not asking them questions like, are you depressed? Are you whatever? And you go, yeah, seven words. Um. Hurt, afraid, yep. angry, ashamed, alone, lonely, tired. Pick one. Hmm. And if you say it in that inviting way, and people have used this with suicidal people, a suicidal person will say all of them. Yeah. And then you say, good, pick one. Okay, ashamed. Tell me about an incident when you felt it at its worst, maybe like at three in the morning all alone, and you didn't even know if you wanted to make it through the night. So you get them to then talk about an awful, awful time when they felt that. But when they're sharing it with you and reliving it with you, uh, they're not alone. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: They're feeling the bonding and the oxytocin. And what will happen is they'll start to cry. Mm-hmm. and as they start to cry, they'll start to feel hope so my model of going in to people uh, with these deep psychic wounds is it's uh, I'm a medical doctor so it's like going into the middle of an abscess you have to clean it out and that's when you're that's when you're staying next to them with the first two steps the say more and then the mediated catharsis and then just like in surgery, you leave a drain in, and they will heal from the inside out. So you leave a drain of empathy. So, so when I was seeing some suicidal patients uh, towards the end, and now I'm just teaching about it. In essence, what you're doing is you're you're keeping them company in the dark night of the soul, and you don't rush in with any uh, techniques or approaches or advice, and unless they say, you know, you know, isn't this something we should try? Hmm. Uh, because a lot of times, if you rush in with those things prematurely, it's like having an abscess that you haven't drained and prematurely suturing it. And what's going to happen is it's going to explode. So, so could you track with uh, that, Christine?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, when I was in my mid thirties, I I fell in love with a, an American, young American man, and uh, and actually moved over to the states for a period of time. But he was bipolar. And wow. yeah, and uh, and so I had my—he uh, was the love of my life—and I uh, had daily conversations with his choice, with living and dying, over a period of time. And one of the things that I got out of that—it was a phenomenal experience. He ended—he did end up killing himself. I, uh, mm. um, and and in actual fact, uh, I, I watched his conflict. On a daily basis, just to stay um, present. Uh, but one of the things, one of the skill sets that it gave me, it gave me this wide-ranging philosophical conversation with what it means to die and what it means to live, and and because that's really what we were exploring and what it means to be a human and what it means to exist. And so if you sort of go back to step number one, um, be a first-class noticer, there's also a level of if I'm going to be in that listening space, then I need to be comfortable with whatever arises. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a non-rescuing. It's, the, it's that really present witnessing just acceptance. I hear your story and I'm not going to have a saviour-based or a rescue-based response to this. Or I can actually have a story about the, the, the deeper conversations about existence and life and pain and suffering uh, as, as a really present human being. And so that was the skill set that I got from, from uh, my two-year relationship with Joseph.
2: You know, it's in, it. it um, yeah, uh, well, it's interesting. Uh, Oprah Winfrey occasionally reports for 60 Minutes. Yes. And she did a report on uh, a segment on treating childhood trauma about an organization that I believe does that in Wisconsin. And in the 60 Minutes Overtime, so all the segments have five or six minutes where the uh, commentator or reporter, someone interviews them. And in the 60 minutes overtime for that segment, Oprah said that was the most life changing story I've ever covered in my entire career. Now, that's a pretty big statement. Mm -hmm. And and so what the reporter asked, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, what they're doing at this uh, childhood trauma uh, uh, place in Wisconsin is their whole position to the children who aren't just sitting there, traumatized, they're acting out, they're you know doing all kinds of strange things. But their position uh, at the treatment center is is to say to the children, "What happened to you? That this is how you're acting now." And Oprah said, "It's totally changed my life." So I think what she was saying is, she was admitting I can be a little bit impatient and judgmental. Mm-hmm. And, Uh, And by and by pausing and realizing that no matter how someone's acting right now, something happened to them either recently or a long time ago that led to this and to be curious about what that was and have them talk it out is a much different connection than reacting transactionally to the behavior. So that's kind of uh, so you were talking about, you know, it does it. It. I think what enables me to listen to some horrific thing is I've been doing it for so many years that I, I, I know that uh, they, I I can actually picture they're getting them, getting stuff off their chest and I can actually feel almost like the, like the abscess, the wound in their psyche is draining. Yes. So that's, that's why I'll even push them to drain even more.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, And now, this takes a fair amount of experience, but once you begin to see that as awful as uh, someone, as awful as it is to hear what someone's saying, especially if they're aiming at you right between the eyes, if you know that they need to get this off their chest, uh, and then and then they will uh, start to relax and even start to cry with relief, you know, then you're able to do it.
3: Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and so, so I'm going to step just a, um, a, to a, high, a level above the the, the full blown suicidal tendencies, because what you're speaking about is actually a daily da- a daily occurrence. So, for example, it's a conversation that happened to me last week where someone was uh, offering a well, it wasn't really feedback; it was a criticism. <laughs> Of something that I had done uh, that had actually achieved um, or gained, you know, a lot of po- really positive feedback, and they were doing it uninvited. So I'm using a I'm using a personal experience here, uh, and so they were offering this this criticism, and I it hurt me deeply and it confused me completely because I just got all of this amazingly positive feedback and then they're offering this really harsh criticism this is like this happens every day to people (laughs) regular people (laughs) so (laughs) in looking at the process that you use uh, you know what I noticed for myself is first of all I noticed this um, a huge amount of feeling sadness come over me and uh and and but so how would, when you're working with when you're working with someone who has that type of experience because these 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 steps and and uh so on are applicable to that type of situation as well so what would you do in that case for
3: for
2: well there's something that i now do and again it's been a work in progress and
3: yes i'm, I'm you know
2: i'm a little bit older and so <laughs> uh, something that i've I've decided is uh, I've made a commitment to not be bitter and to not be paranoid. Right. Because when I see people who are bitter or paranoid, it really, uh, you can't even feel alive.
3: Yes.
2: So my, so my philosophy in life, and this is what I uh, I suggest to the people I mentor and coach, My philosophy is I assume innocence and goodwill until I can't. Yes. And so what happens is I'm assuming that. And in fact, I spoke in Russia to the Russian Federation uh, a year ago, October. I spoke for six hours on listening and empathy. And it went so well, they they made a highlight reel. And if you look up Goulston, Moscow, uh, YouTube, you'll find it and it's, it's, it's in Russia, and, but there's uh, English subtitles Yes, and, I, and I had them at hello <laughs> no, no, really because, uh, uh, because what happened is I, I thought, well, they're not coming there to spend a day and a fair amount of money to just to hear an American make a fool out of himself. Yes. So I assumed innocence and goodwill and, uh, uh. It went over really well because because coming to them doing that, they embraced me. Yes, they opened. I had them at hello. And uh, and so what happens now, that's my orientation. And then when someone hits me with criticism or whatever, I don't like it, but I don't get angry. I get confused. And so what I'll do is I'll 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 look confused and I'll say, what's that about? Yes. It's almost like saying what Oprah said. What happened to you? I'd say, What's that about? And then, uh, and what's interesting is when I'm hitting them with curiosity as opposed to defensiveness. And I'm not saying it like, What's that about? I say, Hey, what's that about?
3: Yeah.
2: And that and that often disarms them. Now, if they get even angrier, and I'll say, Yeah, that too. What's that about? <laughs> and, and so they and they start talking, and uh, uh, and it's interesting as I watch them calm down I then I then validate I said uh, you know and they'll tell me what that's about and I say well good but uh but there's always some truth in criticism yes. I may not like it because I can't adjust to it but you know uh, now that you've told me what that's about or maybe I remind you of someone or you can't stand psychiatrist or whatever um, yeah drill down and tell me again what what is it that you didn't like and would, would you spend a little more time with me on what I could have done or could do going forward to make it better? Mm.
3: Yeah.
2: Now this takes practice, but I will tell you: you leave a conversation like that, and you internally—I mean, uh, after after those conversations, I'll go look in a mirror and I'll say, "Geez, Mark, who was that classy person that you just were?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I say, "You're not that classy, Mark. You're not. You're not. You not you do not have that kind of self-control." but it's a, but I think if you develop it yes. it's fascinating
1: and it is a development and so and it, it, it's it's there's a high degree of both awareness and emotional intelligence that's required there to catch yourself in the act of uh which I didn't at the time uh this was only last week I didn't at the time but I did the half an hour later (laughs) but there is that high degree of oh my gosh this is what's happening and I can I can uh, I can take this approach rather than the defensive or the what often I do which is just sort of like clam up (laughs) and uh, and so this but this is also one of the reasons why Uh, mentoring, as you say, is such an incredibly important experience because um, both you and I, as people who do this, we're constantly on the learning edge ourselves it's not like we've got it it's not like we've got our shit sorted completely i'm imagining you may have but i certainly don't mark
2: oh no no <laughs> i'm far from it just you know just, ask, you know just ask my wife of 40 years right okay
1: just... yeah so, so on that note and you sort of opened this up and it was a really it was a really powerful statement from Warren Venice um painful to be irrelevant uh so because one of the things that I'm discovering as I'm, you know, getting older, which is like, geez, how did that happen? But uh, is that there is there is a societal thing that comes with getting older that can also have an irrelevance to it from a from a general sort of like. Um, societal perspective. Uh, and, and, and so what I want to ask you is, is how are you, you know, what, how are you, what are the edges for you that you're working on in your own, in your own self, and your own interiors, in your own development?
2: Well, what I've discovered is the way to be relevant, because I, I, I'm, to be honest, I'm not someone who can retire and, you know, just play tennis or golf or and I'm not someone who really cares about material possessions or to talk about where I visited or what I have. I mean, it just just doesn't do it for me. And, and so for me, being relevant, uh, and, and this is the approach I have with all the people I mentor, is uh, what they all have in common is, uh, and our friend Amir has this, he's like the poster child, they, they have a, a deep-seated sense of goodness. Yes. Yeah uh they have more aspiration than grabby ambition uh like me they're kind of turned off by the greedy entitled petty jealous people who are just human but turned off by them yeah uh, they're they're determined not to grow up and be bitter even if they have justification to do that and so they have all those qualities all the people that I mentor uh, and that's because I need to root for them I don't work with anyone I can't root for and people, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not angry at them. I just won't work with people who are, who are filled with greed, pettiness, selfishness, jealousy, envy, bitterness. I mean, I, I worked with those people for 25 years as a psychotherapist because when you're a psychotherapist, you deal with personality disorders. Yes. And I, and I found that I could move people from the sort of negative three level of being self-defeating to zero plus one but boy, if someone came in and they say, I want to get better, yeah. um, they could fly. And, and, and here's the distinction. When someone comes in, if you're speaking to them, you know what the difference is between someone who wants to get better, whereas someone who just wants to vent? What's that? The people who want to get better take notes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I hope you're taking notes, Christine. You <laughs> don't have to mark. We go, we're going to record this, and post production will kill half of it.
1: No, 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 no. I don't. I actually don't kill almost anything. I just take out some ums and ahs <laughs> in <Very> post production. <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, people who really, uh, I I have. Um, Someone, and I got it from somebody, but a, a, a little anacronym for um, a, what I call a BMW session. Have you come across that one?
2: No, no, no. Tell me about it.
1: A BMW session is a bitch moan and whinge.
2: Ooh, I like that.
1: And so it's a bounded bitch moan and whinge. It's part of what I what I I teach people. What I mean by bounded is that you, if I, if I came to you, Mark, and I said, can I have a BMW session? I uh, you, you could say no but uh you might say yes and you'll ask me how much time do you need five minutes okay and so i'll put the timer on and that five minutes it's kind of like what you were talking about before with the high colonic <laughs> so the, that's
3: exactly
1: yeah yeah exactly and so i get i it's a bounded. i get permission to just say anything and everything including wrath and anger and swearing and the whole lot about anyone or anything and you just have to, you just have to not absorb it, but just be witness to it. And then it's like, okay, we're done now. We're done now. Good. Can we move on? Great. Thank you. And <laughs> that's a BMW session. <laughs> well,
2: I, I love that. Yeah, you know, I've gotten so feisty. I think part of it is because after 25 or 30 years of really, you know, being empathic and compassionate with, you know, people who, look, I was a doctor, uh, you know, th- this was part of their illness. Yes. So I didn't have. To I don't have to root for patients. I just had to help them, you know, become less self-destructive and which, you know, apparently I did, I was able to do that. But at this stage of my life, you know, I, uh, you know, when I, when I speak with people, I say, look, you know, where would you like to get better psychologically or interpersonally? I can't really help you get better technically because, you know, I, uh, you know, if, if Blackberries were still available, I'd use one of those instead of my iPhone. So, um, Uh, one of the things, one of the things that I do, um, and you've passed the test glowingly, so you're going to like this. When I speak to people like we're speaking, we haven't spoken before in the back of my mind, I'm saying to myself, how soon would I like to speak to this person again? The second thing is if they're totally transactional, I would say, that's enough for now. Yeah. And if they're they're greedy and takers, I say, that's enough forever. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I want to speak to you sooner. So oh, that's you great.
1: Go. That's great. Uh, you, you and I have so much in common. It's, it's quite ridiculous. Um, it, <laughs> and so yes, hopefully one day uh, there'll be a, so, some time over a, uh, over a meal and whatever else, you know, to, to, to share stories. But so, I want to circle back. So you're, the United States, and it's not just the United States, but it's kind of like a, there's this uh, apex of, of divisiveness that is occurring in the world, but there's also this, this the, the whole issues between uh, what it does mean to be a man in today's world. And, and I'll give you my perspective on this, Mark, and as a woman, you know, <laughs> um, as, a, as a woman who's always been a career woman, who was always surrounded by men and never saw any issues until only recently in the last couple of years, uh, between uh, where my my gender, diminished me uh to some some degree but in this world i've felt that women always have had the privilege in the sort of rise of feminism of being able to speak with girlfriends and and but there's also been quite a lot of support for that so there's this, been this thing called feminism but there hasn't been this thing called I don't know how you'd say it in that, masculinism or something like that. There hasn't been this thing where it's like, okay, there's, a, there's new roadmaps for what it means to be uh, a man uh, in a world where there isn't a patriarchy, where it isn't, uh, there isn't anarchy of any kind. It is humans showing up together. There's, and we're writing a map because there hasn't largely been one written for that model for thousands of years that I can understand anyway. And so how would you, given your background and so on in, in this type of work, this is a hypothetical, where, where should we start to really find, you know, create maps and support uh, for the navigation of this new way of being male and female and all genders together, the new way of being together as human beings?
2: Well, uh, I'm going to give you something that you're going to use as part of your pitch. Are you ready? Because I, I like to help people with their pitches. All right. <laughs> so what you say to men uh, is now I don't know if you know the term, but in America they know the term a band of brothers.
1: Yes. Great. You know, great band, TV ser- series, by the way. You
2: know, you know, and it's about the military, and you know, they pull together.
3: Yeah.
2: And so, uh, and so, what you're going to say to, to potential men, is you could say, have you ever heard of the term a band of brothers? And hopefully they will. And you say, what does that mean? And, and then they'll say whatever they mean. And you could say, well, what I put together is a bandage of brothers. All right. And they're going to say, what's that? Well, uh, it's a place where men can share things with other men that they normally don't share and then often can build up and be destructive through drinking, eating, uh, belligerence, and these are good men. Yes. But but they need a bandage, and I help create that, and I'm creating a network of that. Uh, but I mean, if you said that to me, I'd say, "Whoa, I'm in." <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it, that's what it is. It, it's but the you see, I, I'm also very sensitive to certain terms, so uh, I try not to use. Terms like feelings or emotions with men, because mm-hmm. it initially it scares them away.
3: Yes. Uh,
2: now I don't mind them self-discovering it, by the way. Yes. So that, that's why that that's why I can get away with saying, you know, uh, where would you like to be better or need to get better? Mm. You know, uh, in your mindset psychologically, uh, you know, in your professional relationships and your personal relationships. So I, I try and dilute the, you know, the personal stuff and the, and the touchy feely thing, you know, and then they weigh in and, um, and, and what I don't, I don't try to convince anyone of anything if they say, well, I don't think I need to get better anywhere. And I said, well, then we're probably not a good fit. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't even delve into it because there's just enough people who will take me on and they start to just open up and share
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then you, and you keep them sharing mm-hmm. and then some, and then. Something I might do when I'm doing this is I'll say, um, let me ask you, uh, how's this conversation going?
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And often I'll say, um, well, it's kind of different. And I'll say, well, like different good or different bad. And they'll say, it's not bad. And and then I'll often say, um, does it feel like we're talking with each other or that we're talking at each other? And we'll say, no, 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 it feels like we're talking with each other. And then I'll say, um, how often does that happen in your life? Mm. And recently I did that with one person, a man who thought he was on the spectrum. And uh, and in fact, he said, I'm on the spectrum and I have processing problems. Uh, so I, I am very uptight in conversations. And I said, um, well, how's this one going? And he said, I'm nervous, but it's going pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then I said, tell me about your family. Um, did anyone in your family ever talk with each other? Hmm. And then he said, no, no, they, they always, they didn't even talk to each other. I mean, my parents just talked at Daddy. or over us. Yeah. At or over us. And then I said to him, I said, there's a possibility you're not on the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> I mean there's a possibility that you just haven't been talked with. Yes. And then he said to me, he said, Uh uh uh, you just scrambled my brains. I said, Is that good or bad? He said, It's not bad, but you just scrambled my brains, you know, because what it really was is that he'd never been talked with. Yes. And and the fact that he could calm down when we were talking with each other, uh, I mean, you know, if he was really on the spectrum, he wouldn't have been able to engage. Mm. So so anyway, I don't know where that came out of, but I thought you'd find it interesting.
1: Well, yeah, it, and it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary gift to, and it's so simple. It doesn't, it it, it is really um, to to have somebody to be to sit with and it's one of my favorite things in the world is to sit with another human being and and just be present to a human to human connection as a starting place you know that's what I am always invested in uh, because uh I just I just feel that those conversations are the most important things in the world I for me relate the relational the the, the it are using a medical the interstitial spaces between humans is where real stuff happens and and just that relational dynamic and and so uh you know it's a privilege and so many people are suffering for lack of that
2: thought- oh yeah ab- absolutely um, you know something uh, that i i'm very <laughs> i'm I'm very excited about is do you know who Larry King is?
1: Uh, yes. I've heard of him. I don't know him, but I have heard of him. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, he, was, you know, he, he was the big show on CNN for 25 years. Yes. He was their main show. And uh, so I have breakfast with him every day.
3: Okay, cool.
2: And one of the things about Larry King is he is incredibly curious. Yes. What he He asks questions just like a regular person. And he's just curious. I mean... He's always asking, Well, why'd you do that? Well, mm. what were you thinking? And, and and he just does he's done that all his life. And in getting to know him and, and, and really getting to absorb this the power of curiosity, what I what I realized is um, you can't be furious and curious at the same time. <laughs>
3: yes.
2: <laughs> and that if you can every day just be curious without having an agenda, uh, it'll change your life. One of my favorite quotes comes from a British psychoanalyst named Wilfred Bion. And I I think he was talking about presence, but he said, uh, the, the purest form of communication is to listen without memory or desire. Right. And what he means is when you listen with memory, you have an old personal agenda that you're plugging people into. And when you listen with desire, you have a you know a new personal present or future agenda that you're trying to plug people into, but you're not listening to them. So in my book, just Listen, I talk about you should try to be a pal, which stands for purposeful, agendaless listening. yes, and yes. Uh, you know, and the world needs more of that
3: yes,
1: I, I, I shared with you before we came on the call that uh, that when I, in my very early days of of working as a coach and mentor, which was back in the beginnings of coaching and mentoring, uh, I was one of the founders of the coaching profession. But the model that I came up with, one of the legs of the model was "listen till you no longer exist," which was m- my way of saying what you've just said.
2: Oh, you know, I the, love that! I yeah. love. That. I'm going to steal that one from you. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, in other words. I need to be so much invested in what you're saying that who I am and my uh, irrelevance or importance or whatever is gone, and and, and the, the the questions that I might ask next is spontaneously arousable from within me. It's not a pre-launch or anything like that. You know, it's just there, very present, and and uh, and so yeah, it was one of the one of the tools that that. Anyway, uh, so I want to circle back to uh, the um, just to sort of a couple of questions before we close out. You mentioned earlier about vulnerability. Uh, I, so there's two parts to this or the two questions that I'd really like to cover off. Um, what does vulnerability mean to you personally As one and the other one is, is and it, they may be the same answer, what, is, what does it mean for you to be strong as a man?
2: Well, to me, being vulnerable means being open and accessible, being, uh, and it's interesting, uh, you know, I have all kinds of neurotic complexes and, uh, uh, and, and, but people will say, you know, you seem comfortable in your own skin. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know what that means, but I guess apparently I come off that way. And But I think what enables me to be vulnerable, if you think about it, if you assume innocence and goodwill, I'm not being vulnerable. I I just assume innocence and goodwill. I assume that no one's trying to hurt me. And then uh, what I try to do is quickly discover if they're trying to hurt me and then protect myself and defend myself or find out what it's about. But I I think being vulnerable, I haven't made the connection, is being vulnerable is – an absence of paranoia and distrust. So hmm. I'm trust, I'm trusting and I'm not paranoid until I can't be. And it was interesting. I was, uh, uh, years ago, I was involved with, uh, you know, this shoddy television show called, uh, something like, uh, how to marry a millionaire. It, it started before these shows, the bachelor, the same person who did the bachelor and bachelorette had this show and it, and it really was a fiasco. And there was this, uh, man who, uh, you know, interviewed all these beautiful women and at the end of it, he was going to get married that weekend. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of happened. And I was an advisor in that I gave him questions to ask. And then they asked me, uh, the BBC asked me to be on, you know, uh, after the final episode. And so there I was on the BBC's morning show in the middle of the night here. And, uh, they said, they said, Dr. Goulston, you know, uh, we're, we're pretty cynical here, you know, and, you know, and do you think it's really possible to fall in love and have it work out? And this is before it all you know, turned into a big fiasco. I said, I'm not sure if it's, if it's, uh, 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 if that's true, if it's possible but if I had the choice of believing in dreams that can come true and believing in magic versus being cold cynical and British (laughs) good on you (laughs) I, I, I I said I think I'd I think I'd take I think I'd take the former and their response was can you stay on for the next show?
3: Oh, really?
1: <laughs> they wanted you to come oh, back. <laughs> oh, they loved it.
2: They loved it.
1: <laughs> All right. All right.
2: Uh, so that, that was about being vulnerable. And the other yeah, question it was, was.
1: Around it, what is strong?
2: Um, to me, what strength is, is it's having the wisdom to know what's important in life.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: that's worth fighting for versus other stuff that's worth just, you know, not fighting for, letting it go. Uh, Having the integrity uh, to do what you say you'll do, having uh, the character uh, to stand up uh, uh, for your values, and having the courage to stand up against people who violate your values. Mm.
1: Yes. Very nice. So can you say just a little bit, I know we're closing out on time, but a little bit about uh, when somebody does uh, um, either violate your values or is deliberately out to, to harm you, whether it's just verbally, let's just use verbs, words, words. What What's your process for that?
2: Well, as I said, I, I'll just repeat it is since I assume goodwill, um, mm-hmm. see, my view is evil in our personal lives evil is rarely rare Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and everybody else is flawed I'm flawed, I'm deeply flawed so uh, I uh, I assume that everyone is flawed and I should cut them slack Uh, I try to identify, stop evil at the earliest opportunity and if I see someone's being evil towards someone I love I will do anything to smash them So, uh, but I assume that you know, 90 plus percent, 95% of the people you meet are just flawed if they're angry, you know, because, you know, someone did something to them. So, uh, I, I think my approach is, uh, to go along being open mm-hmm. uh, until you know, someone says something. And, and, and again, I have this commitment to not being bitter, yes. not being, uh, also, uh, it enables me to not be defensive. Now, now don't yeah. get me wrong. I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm not I can get defensive mainly at home.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Good, <laughs> like all of us. <laughs>
2: yeah, actually, I had an exchange with my wife, and, and and she. I said, you know, the world thinks pretty well of me, and she <laughs> said, well, they don't. They, they she. They said, well, they don't know you. <laughs> and, I, and I said, and I said to her, I said, wait a minute. How do you know that I'm not being real with them and phony at home? <laughs> <laughs> oh ooh, ooh, okay. Yeah. That was worth the night in the den, Christine. All right, that's very
1: good, uh, very good. Touché, touché. So uh, thank you so much. Um, where can people reach you? Um, and we'll have, what I'll do as usual, I'll have all of the relevant bios and so on in the show notes uh, about your backstory. But where can people reach you, Mark?
2: Well, go to markgoulston.com and if you like what you see, Amir Nasir is the one who built that. It's beautiful. I mean, it makes me look <laughs> it makes me look smarter, wiser, and more focused than I really am, but it's, it's a work of art. So that's markgoulston.com, okay. M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N, or at markgoulston for Twitter. I have 540,000 followers. Uh you can get my books at Amazon there's seven books. Well done. And and check out but check out my podcast, my wake up call. Uh, it's available at iTunes or wherever you uh, get your podcasts.
1: And and in closing is there anything else that you would like to say um to to the audience at all about this conversation?
2: Um, well what I hope is that you'll that you'll listen to it. You'll re, uh, and you'll go to Uh, christine's podcast and 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 you write great reviews of it uh it it doesn't have to be this episode if i was a stinker but write great reviews about her podcast and subscribe and listen to to her podcast and share it with your friends you know so that we can get great information like christine brings out in people uh, uh like me so you can hear more so you can hear more of that
1: you are a very generous person. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so uh, thank you very much for your time today, Mark. Really really, th- really lovely meeting you.
2: Well, to, uh, to be continued,:
1: To be continued. Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye. To listen to more of these conversations and access the show notes, visit: 223am.com. That's the number two, the number two, the number three am.com and experience a whole new kind of success and fulfillment. If you've got what it takes, experience a session directly with Dr. Christine McDougall. Visit 223am.com and apply now. Thanks for listening.